Today's scripture comes from book of Esther, chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, it says, When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Hegai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. Thank you. Uh, Esther chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be in first 18 verses of Esther chapter 2. Pastor Mike read just one verse. We'll, we'll read the whole, whole chapter as we go along with the story. But today we're in the second chapter of the book of Esther. Pastor John did a wonderful job of opening up the book of Esther. Uh, he gave us a bird's eye view, right? Major themes that the book is trying to teach us. And I think if you missed it, I want to encourage you to log on to our podcast. We have a podcast of sermons to listen to it because you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be missing out on some wonderful, wonderful bird's eye view of the book. But before we dive into today's text, I want to quickly remind us why we're spending probably next several months in the book of Esther, right? First and foremost, the book of Esther does a wonderful job of helping you and I remember a, a nature of God that we often forget. The, the, the nature of God, the fact that God is utterly sovereign. Tell somebody God is sovereign. He's sovereign. Or to say it another way, there is never a time in your life, in my life, even though we may seem lost and confused, and we may be panicking about what's happening, we think about stuff that's happening around the globe, what's happening maybe within our lives, we may be confused and panicking, but the truth is God is not. Even when we can't seem to sense Him or see Him, like the songs that we sing, Esther's story reminds us that He is ever so near to us. Also, the book helps us in another way to recognize that we are not the master of our own lives. I've talked about this before in this community, right? We live in a world of Convenience. We live with our technology, with our Apple Watches and iPhones, and we feel like there's illusion of control. We feel like we can control the temperature of our house, temperature of our, of, of our car. We could control our schedule and manipulate all these things. But the truth is, what the book of Esther reminds us once again is, we're actually not in control. That we don't have control, or we, the control we think we have, but God is. Yet, the wonderful news is God has invited you and I to be his agents. Although we're not the master of our own lives, he has invited us to be his agents. His pieces, his tools to be able to fulfill his wonderful promises and purposes that he has in our lives. So this means, the book of Esther teaches this means, no matter how dire life's circumstance may seem or feel to us, God is God who protects. God is God who shows up. God is God of hesed faithfulness. We'll talk about that word because that shows up in our, in our chapter. Last week, Pastor John was in Esther chapter 1. Is it, is it warm in here? Can we maybe lower the temperature a little bit? A little bit warm in here? Maybe not. Uh, we're in chapter 1. We're introduced in chapter 1. We're introduced to a king named Xerxes. And Xerxes was one of the most powerful men at the time of the story. He's the king of Persia, which was one of the superpowers at the time, right? Babylonians, 
was a superpower at the time. As they were fading, Persians came up. And King Xerxes, King Xerxes was one of the most powerful men at the, story, at the time of the story. And chapter 1 tells us he throws this epic party. Invites all of his leaders, generals, uh, managers, satraps. And he throws this great party to not only celebrate, to really show off his power, to make sure his men believe he is wealthy and powerful and trustworthy, perhaps because he was preparing to go to, go to war against the Greeks. He needed to get buy-ins from all of, the, all of his leaders. So he, he, he throws this extensive party. Right, He invites them, his place to drink and, and eat and do whatever their heart desires. For days on, it wasn't just a one-day celebration, it was on and on. And one evening, chapter 1 tells us, when he had too many, one too many drinks, he tells his wife, he, he sends his men for his wife, queen at the time, Queen Vashti, to come and display her beauty in front of his men who are drunk, who are parting, right? And the queen, chapter 1 says, what, you're drunk and I'm not going to be your entertainment, Right? And you see, what the king should have done at the moment, if you're reading this story, right, it's very obvious what the king should have done at that moment was he should have realized he was drunk and acted foolishly. I mean, we've, as husbands in this room, we've done some, some foolish things. And I think when I get into an argument with my wife and my wife calls me out, there oftentimes I reflect back on a conversation, I should have just apologized. I should have just admitted that I didn't see the whole picture or I wasn't listening or I didn't really ask how she felt. But often we're tempted to be like, no, I'm not wrong. We're, we're digging deeper. And then it gets harder and more difficult. Just like that, this king won't do it because he's a proud man. And he's surrounded by, what's worse is surrounded by a group of people who will tell him only what he wants to hear. Right? These, these men that are around him that should have given him sound advice actually tells them, no, you shouldn't apologize. Like, it's like, you know, we have that friend who's, not always giving, who's giving us always bad advice. They're having a conversation. They're like, well, you shouldn't apologize. You are not wrong. She's in the wrong. In fact, let's make her an example. Right? What if, other, what if our wives hear about what your wife did? You're the king. And what if they dis disrespect us? So, so these foolish advisors advise the king to dethrone the queen. And, and, and again, because he's a proud man and not very wise, he, dis, he says, yeah, let's do that. And chapter 1 comes to an end. That was chapter 1. Here's chapter 2. Um, and chapter 2, let me just read for us. I'll, I'll, I'll be quick. Chapter 2, verse 1. Let me, if you have your Bibles, it's not going to be on the screen. Open up your app. Let me just read really quickly chapter 2. And this is English Standard Version. Verse 1. After these things, when the anger of King Xerxes had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Right? Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the woman. Let their cosmetics be given to them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Ashti. 
This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jar, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem along the captives, carried away with Jeconia, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. Hadassah is her Hebrew name. Esther is her Persian name. The daughter of his uncle, she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. When her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter, which was a normal custom for family members, the king of the family to take in someone who's alone. Verse 7, so when the king's order and his, his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the woman. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, talking about Esther, and he quickly provided Esther with her cosmetics and a portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to, to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Xerxes after being 12 months under the regulation for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, a long time, six months with oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ornaments for women. When the young woman went in to the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening, she would go in, and in the morning, she would return to the second harem in custody of Sha'ahagaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go in to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. And when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihel, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go in to the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the woman, advised now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken into King Xerxes, into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Ashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. That's where we're going we're gonna to unpack verses 1 to verses 18. So verse 1 says, after these things, right, a significant, what the author is telling us is a significant time has passed between chapter 1 and chapter 2. Many assume there was about four years in between events of chapter 1 and events of chapter 2. And during those four years, history tells us King Xerxes went to war against the Greeks, another superpower at the time, and he was utterly defeated. He came home defeated. And that's where we pick up the story in chapter. That's what most historians believe. Chapter 2 is after this defeat that he's tasted. Verse 1 
tells us after some time, after this defeat, the king comes home and he says he remember Vasti. It's like, it's like a lover who's broken up with his ex and looks back and says, man, she was really good or he was awesome. I should have made things work out. It's obvious that the author tells us he missed her, right? He begins to recognize, right? Perhaps he begins to recognize he shouldn't have listened to his men, should have, you know, tried to make things work with Vesti. Yet the, there was nothing that he could do at this point because why? He was trapped by his own foolish decree that he had made at the moment of high emotion. When he was angry, he made this decree and he can't take his words back. No decree made by the king can be reversed. Right? So the king's advisor, being afraid also if Vesti was to be restored, right? Their own lives could be in danger, for they were the ones they came up with this degree, decree and advised the king to make this decree. If Vesti came back to her power, she, she could remove all of them. So the man in his court puts a plan together for a new harem composed of the most beautiful virgins in all of the empire. And verse 5, author tells us this plan that these men have come up with pleased the king, and he did so. This plan pleased the king, and he did so. See, whenever we see sin, whenever we see moral failure in Scripture, in all of Old Testament, this sentiment comes to Scripture over and over again. This idea the plan pleased the king, and he did so, right? This idea that was true of the king in our passage, that is true of Israelites in the book of Judges. If you read throughout the book of Judges, one of the main themes that the book of Judges tell us is that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Is this sentiment, right? And let's be very clear about what, the king and his men are planning to do. This was not some wonderful beauty pageant. I've, I've read some commentators were like, this was beauty pageant. This is not a wonderful beauty pageant where you get to present your talent and you, you get a medal or you get prizes. No. If not, all of the young women or most young women in this story were probably taken against their will. I wonder how many young girls hid when the king's officers showed up to their town to abduct them. Heartbroken parents having to hide them. Perhaps many of the girls at the time ended up marrying anyone who was available to avoid being taken. Right? This was a harsh thing for all the women that were taken. It wasn't like they were going to live this posh life. If the, you had one night with the king, and the, if the king did not delight in you for the rest of your life, you cannot get married again. You live a very lonely life for the rest of your life. I mean, you'll have a nice palace, a nice home, but that's about it. This was something that was just not very good. In verses 5 to 11, we're told it's not until midway of chapter 2, uh, Esther finally enters the story. I mean, wow, we've waited this long to hear about Esther. Esther finally enters the story. And she is introduced as a cousin of a Jewish man named Mordecai. I always loved Mordecai. It was such a wonderful name, Mordecai. Who was, uh, Esther was orphaned and Mordecai was, was her cousin. He took her in. And Mordecai is described as a man of noble character and wisdom. Right? And throughout the story, we'll see Mordecai show up and he is one man 
who is not afraid to do the right thing. He takes care of his, his cousin. He watches over her. And author tells us Mordecai is from the tribe of Benjamin. We know tribe of Benjamin. We know some famous Benjaminites in the scripture. right? In fact, he is of royal blood, descended of a man named Kish. And Kish is known to be the grandfather, or I'm sorry, the father of King Saul, the first king of Israel. Right? So he is from the family line of King Saul. And so what the point of this whole description of describing Mordecai is the author wants us, the the audience, not to miss this very important point. What's the point? That Mordecai and Esther, they're part of God's people who are exiled into Babylon. This is very important. Now, Now, they're being identified as God's own people. And verse 7, right off the bat, we are told that Esther is her Persian name. She's actually introduced as Hadessa, which is her Hebrew name. She's the only character in all of the story with two different names. Not Mordecai, not other people, but Esther is given two names. And this is very intentional on the part of the author, right? What the author wants to do, what the author wants the audience to know is that Esther will have to learn to live between these two very different cultures. She's going to have to navigate the culture that she grew in as a, as a Jewish girl and also culture that she was thrust into as a Persian, Persian woman. And, th- and this, these two identities in the future will come to direct conflict as we read the story. But Arthur tells us also, not only she was orphan, not only she was a Benjaminite, but also she was a woman of exceptional beauty. She was lovely to look at, right? And verse 8, because she was lovely to look at, she was taken along with probably thousands of other women, other young girls, to the city of Susa and were placed under a man named Haggai, and they went through this intense preparation period, 12 months preparation period, before they were sent to the king. Verse 9, the author tells us, Haggai saw Esther and immediately was impressed by her. Right? And so Haggai showed great favor. That's what verse 9 says. But the word employed here by the author for favor is not a normal word that author would use, but it is actually a very important Hebrew word called hesed. It's more like hesed. Okay, I almost threw up my Hesed. And this idea of hesed, we, we've talked about this many times. Hesed is in the book of Ruth. It's in a lot of wonderful Old Testament narratives. Hesed is weaved throughout the Old, Old Testament scripture, and it does not describe simple human favor. There's another word for that. Instead, whenever Hesed comes out in the scripture, it speaks of God's favor on his own people. It's this idea of covenantal relationship that God promised to be their God and for them to be his people. And in this covenantal relationship, God is showing favor. So when you read passages like Isaiah 54.10, it says, though the mountain may depart and the hills may be removed, but my steadfast love, my hesed love, shall not depart from you. That's God's promise to his people. We are in covenant, and I love you because of this covenant. 
So hesed really is a steadfast, rock-solid faithfulness that endures to eternity. This is the idea. Listen to John Oswert, and he, he says this about hesed, and I think this is a worthy quote. And let me quote for us. Hesed speaks of a completely undeserved kindness and generosity done by a person who is in position of power. This was the Israelites' experience of God. God revealed himself to them and they were not, when they were not looking for him. And he kept his covenant with them long after their persistent breaking of it had destroyed any reason for his continued keeping of it. Unlike humans, this deity was not fickle, undependable, self-serving, and grasping. Instead, he was faithful, true, upright, and generous always. And I quote. So when the author is employing the word hesed into the story of Esther, what's interesting about the book of Esther, Pastor John talked about this, God is not mentioned once throughout the whole book. There are nine, some, ten, some chapters. God is not mentioned once. Yet what the author is intending to do here is by including this word hesed, God's favor, he is hinting that although God may not be seen or God is not obviously talked about, he's behind every scene, every action of the story. It reminds us that this word hesed should jump out at us and, and remind us that God is intimately involved in every step of Esther's life but also every step of you and my life as his people. You see, despite all the sin, all the greed and lust and human foolishness that is displaced in both chapter 1 and chapter 2, from this king's life, these men, what's interesting about the story is none of these actions have altered God's steadfast, hesed love for his own people. We're going to see it in chapter 3 as story develops. Every piece, you know, when I designed the sermon poster, I, I drew a, a chessboard and, and the queen piece. This is all, let me, let me board you with a little bit of details. Well, I believe this is really the story. God is this chess master. And no matter what everybody is trying to do, God has a clear plan, clear idea of how he's going to actually save his people. And that's really the story of Esther. So here's the one thing that the author does not want us to miss as we walk through chapter 2, is that, friends, as we journey with Jesus, there will be times where we may feel utterly confused about what God is doing. We may, we may feel utterly lost or, or even abandoned by God. I've experienced that. Maybe you're experiencing that, bef th that now or you've experienced that in your past, as you walk with God, you just don't know, but things are not going well and you feel completely abandoned or confused and not sure what's happening. You've experienced some form of injustice at home, at work. Someone betrays you or, or particular storms of life, sickness. Something you didn't expect happened, happened. Right? In those moments, it's easy to doubt, it's easy to mistrust, easy to question God, it's easy to want more control, but displaying faith is difficult because why? Faith is not easy, mistrust is easy, doubt is easy, wanting more control is human nature, but faith is of God. 
Yet God has always proven himself. Whenever we read through scripture, whether that's Old Testament, New Testament, God has proven himself to be Emmanuel, God with us. Not God from afar, not God who's away, not God on vacation, but God with us, God Emmanuel. That means whatever you're facing, whatever we're going through, whatever we're experiencing today, those realities, because those are real challenges and problems you're facing, does not define God's relationship with us. That he's not far from us. That he's not blind to our tears. That he, his ear is not deaf to our cries. He sees us. He hears us. And he will continue to protect, comfort, and move us to fulfill his redemptive work in us and through us. That's really the story. Not only the book of Esther, not only scripture, but you and my life. Because when you think about Esther's situation, for Esther, everything has been decided for her. She has no choice but to comply to what life is throwing at her, right? There's so much wickedness and sin in this story, in this chapter. Yet we see God's faithfulness every step of the way. And do you see the irony of this story? If you think, there's so much irony in this story. I think Pastor John said, said this. there's so much irony in this story, right? On one end, there is this king who is one of the most powerful men, perhaps in the history of mankind. He's got the authority, he's got the power, he's got the money, he's got the people. He's got it all. He could make anything happen. He's the king. Yet no matter how hard he seems, he, he attempts to shape the world according to his lust and his desire. You see, when you, when you step back, we see that he is not in control. He cannot escape the plan of God, even the most powerful man. Then on the other side, there is Esther, who is the least powerful person, at least in this story. She's a foreigner. She is an orphan. She doesn't come from a wealthy family. She doesn't have the right pedigree or the connections. Yet these realities means nothing because God is on the move. God has chosen Esther and God wants to save his people through Esther and he's going to do it. Doesn't matter what she doesn't have. So that's the first thing we, 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 we got to see from chapter 2. That despite of what all that is happening, God is still in control and God is still moving his vision and his good purpose through the lives of these people. Second thing, and this is, this is the last point, scholars have always wondered, many commentators have wondered, perhaps even judged Esther's decision to remain silent about her identity, her Jewish identity. We've seen men like Daniel and his friends who stood against the king of, of Babylon, who said no to the royal food, no to the statue, no to their rules, and said they're going to serve God only, Yahweh only. Yet here we see Esther and Mordecai, although they are part of God's people, Jewish race, Benjaminite, and royal family themselves, she makes no protest about eating unclean food. We hear nothing about Esther's protest. Or does, doesn't even protest against the idea of being married to a pagan king. 
So how are we to reconcile these decisions and choices? Perhaps we feel uneasy about hearing Esther as someone who had to go sleep with a pagan king. But we've got to remember the context. right? Esther and Mordecai is not in Jerusalem. They do not have access to the temple or the Torah. They're foreigners struggling to maintain their relationship to Yahweh in a very pagan culture, pagan nation. Should they maintain the distinctive and clothing, language, and custom, thereby identifying themselves as Jews? If they assimilate to the culture in which they were living, would it compromise their faith? These are real questions we're asking as we approach this book. These are real challenges, not only for Esther and Mordecai, but these are real challenges that you and I face every day as we go to work as we work for our secular companies, as we have our non-Christian friends and in relationship with them. You see, living between these very different cultures, distinctive cultures, is not easy. It's no easy task. I mean, many of us are foreigners to this city. Many of us feel like foreigners. Maybe you've never left Korea, but you can feel like a foreigner. And for me, growing up in America, Spending my teenage years there and then coming out. It's been 17 years actually living in the city of Seoul. Oksukumo, like 17 years I've lived there, right? When I visit U.S., I don't feel like an American. I don't know what's going on. I go to Best Buy and I'm like, yo, you have AS? They're like, what's AS? Warranty, right? You come back to Korea and you're here and I definitely don't fit in. Half the time people think I'm a hip-hop artist. I don't know why. Right, it's 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 I, I you know living these dual culture is hard. It's challenging. It's messy. It's not neat. It's not clean. There there is a lot of gray areas that we need to navigate. And Esther and Mordecai apparently had chosen to adopt these dress and customs and practices of Gentile neighbors. But here is something that we need to recognize, right? The author's primary intent here isn't to tell us, isn't to tell the audience how God's people are to relate to the secular world. That's not the primary purpose of writing this story. Notice the author makes no attempt to vindicate Esther's decision by explaining her dire situation. Nor does the author tell us that Esther's concealment of her identity was God's direct instruction. Author says nothing about that. So it's tempting for you and I to pass our judgment about the way Esther has handled her situation or has not handled herself in this situation. Yet regardless of whether Esther and Mordecai always knew what the best choice was or whether they had the best of motives, which probably they always didn't. What's clear is that God was working through even their imperfect decisions and actions to fulfill his perfect purposes. And this is really the main message that the author wants to give us. And friends, you know, even the godliest people in all of Scripture, they were flawed. They were often confused. Sometimes they were outright disobedient. And me as your pastor, I wish I could say I'm different. I wish I could tell you I am never confused about God's will in my life. I am never 
disobedient. I'm always obedient. I wish I could tell you I always make the right decision. But you know and I know I don't, make, I don't always make the right decision. That my motives is not always good. That wouldn't be true for me. That wouldn't be true for you. What the, what, what the author wants to show us is that our lives do not look very different from lives of the flood men and women we find in the scripture. Yet our gracious God continues to work out his perfect plan through us despite our mistakes, despite our bad motives. And most surprisingly, even through powerful political structures that sometimes operate in the most evil way. You see, the story, chapter 2, and all of Esther isn't simply about a foreign orphan girl who rises to become the next queen of the superpower Persia. It isn't this wonderful Jewish Cinderella story. This story is about God and his vision and his plans and his steadfast faithfulness, has said faithfulness. And that very has said faithfulness became most clear to you and I when, when the greater Esther, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, entered creation for us. Friends, this is the gospel. We say this every week. Jesus lived a life, the sinless life. He died a sinner's death to carry us from death unto life. Jesus, what the book of Esther is pointing at, is Jesus, the greater Esther. He's the greater Esther. You see, Esther in the story was thrusted into a world of great sin and compromise, not knowing why she was there. Even by chapter 2, Esther has no idea what's ahead. Not realizing soon she will have to risk her life to speak for her people. But Jesus, the greater Esther, knew fully well what it would take to save you and I from our sin, from our shame, from our death. He wasn't simply thrusted into creation because he had no other choice. He volunteered. He said, Father, I will go. Father, send me. Father, let me go. He came to live and to die. And therefore, if anyone is in Christ, Scripture says we are a new creation, not because we've earned our righteousness, not because we are good, we are worthy, we follow all the rules. No, despite that, God has come for us. And, and I believe Esther chapter 2, as we go to chapter 3, that's the message that God wants to remind us. Amen? Let's pray. Let me pray for us. Lord, we thank you for this complex story. There's so much gray in the life of Esther and Mordecai. And Lord, we confess, we also live in a world that is gray. Our lives, whether it's at work, at home, whether when we're alone or with, with other people, we're making choices and we live in the gray, God. And it's so encouraging for us to know that you meet us in the gray. You meet us in our confusion. You meet us in our defeat. You meet us in our frustration. That you are not far. Your hand is not too short. Your ears are 
not too weak. Your eyes are not too weak to see us, to hear us, God. So this afternoon we come with challenges we're facing today. The sense of having no control over the events of our lives. There are areas of our lives, in each of our lives, that we feel like we don't have control. And that's probably true, Lord. So we come seeking the one who is in control. Seeking the one who sees it all, who knows it all. Who even sees our fickle hearts, our uncommitted actions, things that we do behind closed doors, the way we treat people, the way we do. Lord, you see it all. Yet your steadfast has said love will not leave us alone. Your covenantal love that you have made with us shines brightly, bright, brighter than any of our shortcomings, any of our failures. So Lord, I pray as we're about to sing, let faith arise, let faith arise in our hearts to see life with new perspective, to be able to see life, you as a chess master of our lives, making all the moves and trusting step by step to obey when it's hard to obey, to seek you when it's hard to pursue you, to worship in the rain, to sing in the storm, to recognize you are on the move. Teach us, Lord. Remind us once again Meet us where we are. Just let me pray. Amen. Friends, we're going to go into time of communion.